Let's get back into our, our series in Hebrews 11. We've been going through this one chapter for most of our series. We've been going through this chapter and we've been going person by person. And the reason that we've been going through it person by person is because the author of Hebrews says in the first verse of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in other words, since we are surrounded, since we have been reminded of all these people that we're going over in Hebrews 11, let us have a race that is ran with endurance. With all these people in mind, let us be encouraged and let us be strengthened to press on in our race of faith. Now note, we are not like looking at these people because we want to replicate what they had. We're not looking at them because we want to be great and mighty. We're not looking at them because we want to be blessed beyond measure. But rather we are looking at them because of what we can learn from their lives. We're looking at them because of their witness to the things of God. And we're looking at them because we are seeing what that means for our own faith. And faith is the key word, right? Like time and time again, we see this term used called, it says, by Faith. And that statement is usually followed by something that is accomplished because of the faith of the individual. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. Right? By faith, Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham left his home. By faith, Sarah conceived a child. And, and there's more examples in there as well. So by faith, all these things happen, which means there's something we can learn about faith in this passage or something that can be re-emphasized about faith. And by way of reminder, here's just our running definition of what faith means. We're not going to spend too much time on this one tonight. We hit it every single week. But here's the running definition. Hebrews 11.1 1 states the definition of faith is now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and it's the conviction of things not Seen. So just get that back in your minds as we dive back into this series. We've already covered a lot of Old Testament saints, and tonight we probably get to cover, or we get to cover probably one of the most famous of them all. Tonight we're talking about Moses. Tonight, and actually next week, we are looking at the faith of Moses. Well, Mostly the faith of Moses. Like the, the beginning actually is the faith of Moses' parents. But we're all putting it together under the umbrella of Moses and the story of Moses. Right? So the faith of Moses is what I've decided to call this. And we'll get to that in a second. But I just wanted to ask you, like, what do you know about Moses? Because my, my assumption is you know quite a bit about him. Because his story is easily in the top five most famous stories in all of scripture, whether or not you're a Christian or not, whether or not you read the Bible or not, like especially things like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, countless movies have been made about it, and this doesn't have much to do with the message, but I was just curious, how many of you know what, what this movie, how many of you have seen Prince of Egypt? Like, show of hands, I want to know. All right, I just wanted to get an idea of the generational divide between us, and I'm glad that this has brought us together a little bit more, okay? So... So this is a popular telling of the story of Moses, right? It, it's, not, it's not all accurate. Um, they definitely took some liberties with Moses and the way the story played out. They changed a few things around. But overall, this is one of the ways that people think of the story of Moses. And there are some moments in that movie that are just amazing to see, sort of visualize, right? And also the music, like 
We sang the music in my choir in high school. I loved it. But anyway, now I'm getting, now I'm getting sidetracked. All right, back to the whole thing. So the whole reason that I'm bringing this up tonight is because I want you to just muster everything you can remember about the story of Moses because we're not going to get a chance to read through the entire story of Moses as we do this because it spans several chapters of Scripture. I mean, it's a large chunk of the book of Exodus is just literally the Exodus part of it. And uh, we're not going to get a chance to read all of it because we simply just don't have the time to spend doing that. So tonight, we're going to stay pretty rooted in the, in the verses in Hebrews here, and we'll reference the Old Testament. I'll put a few of them on the screen, but if you need further clarity on the story of Moses, if I say something and that doesn't really connect with you and you don't know, there's a couple things you can do. The first one would be read the book of Exodus, right? Like get your eyes in the word of God yourself and trust the Lord that he will reveal to you through the spirit what it means. Uh, Second, find some help, right? Come talk to me, come talk to one of our leaders. We'd love to help you understand what's going on in the book of Exodus, all right? So that's my spiel about how we're not going to read through all of Exodus, but let's get into our reading in Hebrews now. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 23, and I'm just going to read the, the six verses, 23 to 29. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So I'm excited tonight because this passage right here contains new things about faith that we haven't talked about. Yeah, you know, we, we've had some repeats as we've gone through this. We've had some things we've reemphasized, things we've added to a little bit. But tonight, we see some new things, some, some new things that faith can cause in our lives and that faith caused in the, life of Mo, the lives of like Moses and, and his parents in order to bring them through the Exodus, in order to cause them to grow in their faith by turning towards Christ. We learn new things, and over the next two weeks, we're going to have several of them. Uh, but tonight, we're just going to have one, one new thing that we're learning tonight that we're going to spend a lot of time on. We're going to be focusing on and seeing how it plays out in our lives. And, and here it is. What we learn about faith tonight is that faith defends good and godly things. Is that me? Maybe it's my beard. We'll find out. Maybe it's like scratching against it. All right. So faith defends good and godly things. Let me show you where I'm drawing that from. Look at the first part of verse 23 again. Like, Get your eyes there. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Like, What did Moses' parents do by faith? They hid him for three months. And why did they do that? What was the, the motivating factor? Well, it says there in the next sentence. You look back at it again. Because they saw... That the child was beautiful, meaning that like if faith is the vehicle by which this action was caused, which we know it to be true because it says by faith, then it means that their faith is the reason that they saw that he 
was beautiful. Now, I'm guessing that you're sort of in the boat that I was as I was starting to read through this and study it. Like, I'm guessing you're thinking this sounds sort of weird, right? Like, they chose to, to save a child's life because he's beautiful, right? My first thought was like, well, what if he was ugly, right? If, like, if he was an ugly baby, what would they have done with him? To me, it, it sounds odd. And if you're thinking that, I, I agree with you. It sounds odd, sounds shallow, and honestly, it sounds a little wrong, right? It, it sounds wrong, but there are a few things that we need to know to get the full picture of what's going on here. And first is we need to understand the danger he was in in the first place. Like, let's understand that part so you don't have to turn your Bibles there, but let's just see in Exodus what's going on. This is Exodus chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. Said that now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And here's the part. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, you know, the, the women that are aiding in birthing these children, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrath, oh, Shiphrath uh, and the other Pua. That one's easier, Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. So the murder of innocent children, just because the Pharaoh was afraid of the Hebrews rising up against him. Like, that's a tragedy. It's barbaric. This is literal genocide. It's wrong. Like, to murder any human is wrong. It violates the sanctity of life. I mean, this is the Egyptians' way back in the time of selective abortion. Like, literally choosing to end the life of a child the life of a human based on their gender. And you better believe, like, if the technology had been in place back then to end the life of a child in the womb after doing a gender test, it's what they could have done. The Egyptians wanted to cause the Israelite nation to grow weak and become extinct. Like, no males to carry on the bloodline. Sick, wrong, gross. And yet it doesn't say... That Moses' parents, if you're looking back at Hebrews 11 there, it doesn't say that Moses' parents saved him because they valued the sanctity of life. Or does it? See, the text says they saved him because he was beautiful. You see it there? Verse 23. He was hidden because they saw the child was beautiful. So on the surface, it looks like you're telling me that Moses' parents would be okay for him to die if he was ugly? Is it the handsomeness of Moses that saved him? Scripture says, actually, no, it's not. Actually, it was the faith of Moses' parents that saved him, not his good looks. Let me explain. Like, beautiful here doesn't mean, like, beautiful in 
appearance. Well, I mean, it technically could, right? Like, for all we know, Moses actually was a very handsome child. Like, it doesn't say that he, that he wasn't. Um, there's nothing to say that he wasn't. Um, but there is something to say that the beauty that was had there is more than, it's more than skin level, right? It's, it's deeper than skin. It's deeper than his facial features. And that's actually evidence in the book of Acts. Like, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But in the seventh chapter of Acts, we see Stephen who is about to be the first man murdered for the sake of the gospel. We're we're talking about the first martyr. We see him giving a speech to the high priest of the Jews, and then he goes in like this beautiful, like explanation, like he's just letting them have it, goes in this beautiful explanation of God's work throughout his people in history. And in verse 17, he gets to Egypt and Moses, and this is what he says. It's on the screen. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Right? We just read through all this. Verse 19. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And verse 20. At this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. Meaning, as other translations say as well, Moses wasn't just beautiful. But Moses was beautiful to God. He was beautiful in God's Sight And what Hebrews tells us is that by faith, Moses' parents recognized that. Their faith gave them the eyes to see that Moses was precious to God. Their faith gave them the faith to see that Moses was beautiful in God's sight as all children are. Like we know, like God doesn't look on the physical appearance, but he looks on the heart of man. That's what we see in Samuel, right? Like And their faith gave them the strength to see that, gave them the faith to see that, and it gave them the strength to fight for it. Look back at the the passage. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months, meaning by faith they had the strength and they had the courage to fight against the wicked law of their time and save this child who's beautiful in God's sight. And it says, because they saw that he was beautiful, they were not afraid of the king's edict. What was the king's edict? You shall kill every male child that is born. They were not afraid of that because their faith had given them the eyes to see that Moses was a beautiful creation of God. And we're going to get more into that like lack of fear stuff later on. Like next week we dive a lot into fear and faith and how they intersect. But like do you see what I'm talking about right now? Do you see that because... They had faith. They were able to see what was good. They were able to see what was godly. That's what they saw. The precious life of a baby and they were willing to fight for it. They saw good and godly and they defended it. That's what faith does. Faith defends what's good and godly. And what we learn from this is that as we turn our eyes to Christ... As we try to run this race of faith with endurance, it causes us, faith should cause us to act. As faith to them causes them to act, so to us should our faith call us to defend the good and godly. So the question of application remains is, do you do that? Do you, as someone who claims to have faith, Do you defend what is good 
and godly? Like, does your faith cause you to defend it? Or do you sit on the sidelines as evil envelops the things of God, as the world distorts reality? Have you let yourself become so influenced by culture and the need to appease it that you've given up the defense for godly things? Like, do you defend? Do you defend the millions of innocent children that are being murdered for the sake of convenience through abortion every single year? Or do you sit idly by as lawmakers pass laws and permit freedoms that should be given to no man? Do you fight for the homeless? Do you care for the widow? Do you care for the orphan? In your life plan, with whatever you feel God has you called towards, right? I mean, most of you are at a point, you're looking at your future. Very few of you are looking back at the past. You're looking towards what God might have for you in your, your college degree or your career or wherever you might be. Like, as you look towards those things, is it within your view, your purview, to fight for those things, to defend what is good and godly in the world and promote those things? Is that a part of your worldview? Do you stand for the things of God or for fear of offending the world? Do you take a back seat to culture? Would you be fearless of the king's edict? That's what I'm asking, right? Would you, like them, be fearless of the king's edict? Do you allow the things of sin of this world to be, celeb- to be celebrated in order to keep the peace? Even worse, do you treasure the things of the world and elevate them to the place of God? Like worshiping them alongside God or worshiping them as God. Like I could talk all day about like some of the obvious things in our culture that, that we need to defend, right? I just brought up a few, like abortion and, and homelessness and widows and orphans. But tonight, I'd rather spend more time talking about the things that slowly creep into our culture. The things that slowly take over our mindset. I want to talk about the things that our culture is so steeped in, right? That the you are so steeped in that when something happens, it causes you to question yourself. Causes you to question your faith or how your faith fits into this. I'm talking about the things that like when something arises, you're like, is it just that I don't understand? Is it just that I'm not loving enough? Am I just not being compassionate enough? You know, the things that really cause you to evaluate yourself. And it's hard because you've been sort of like raised in this world. And, and this world is rampaging with so many things. And, and here we are as people who want to defend the good and godly things because of our faith. And sometimes it just creates a lot of choices to choose from. So tonight, uh, I just want to talk about just one example, right? Just, just one. Like, this is not the end-all, be-all. This is not the ultimate thing that is going on in the Quad Cities right now. Um, But I think it is something that is, it's current. It's relevant. If you go to Augie, it's going to be very relevant for you. Um, But it's something that happens across every campus. I remember things like this happening on my campus when I was going to college. And that was like a decade ago. Man, I feel old now. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. All right. Um, The thing that I want to talk about tonight uh, I got this printed out. It's an email that was sent out by Augie. But the thing I just want to use as an illustration is this. 
don't know if you guys can read this, but this says Beyonce Mass. This is an event happening at Augustana College next month. And uh, they, in this email that they sent out promoting it, they sent a YouTube link of a video so you have a better understanding for what this Beyonce Mass is. And so I, I want to take a few minutes and just watch this. And then I want to I talk about it and how it relates to our message tonight. So it's like four minutes long, but let's check out the Beyonce Mass trailer video. I'm at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, California. Hundreds of folks are going to come here to witness the Beyonce Mass, bringing together secular music and a religious message to tell a story of empowerment for particularly women of color, but for anyone who happens to sing praises to the goddess herself, Beyonce. because we sing Beyonce in church. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, we do have a community that is youthful and loving and looks to the world as a partner, not an enemy. So if that's new to you, I hope it's good news. God actually loves you. What can you tell me about the progressive nature of Grace Cathedral? I think a lot of the people who show up tonight are people of color, LGBT people, people on whom other people's narratives have been projected. And I mean, just to be honest, the church hasn't been the best about lifting up those voices. It really began as us saying, how can we actually be the people of God that we hope to be in the world? And Beyonce is the perfect passage to get that message out there. Honestly, I think Beyonce is a better theologian than many of the pastors and priests in our church today. That is not an exaggeration. According to a recent Gallup poll, Catholic church attendance has gone down nearly 40% since the 1950s. But tonight's Beyonce Mass is set to draw crowds in the hundreds. And though I don't consider Beyonce to be a religious symbol, like some of her most ardent fans, there's no denying her strong use of religious symbolism throughout her music and performances. Paying homage to everything from female African deities, The Last Supper, Black Madonna, and the Virgin Mary herself. I spoke with Reverend Yolanda Norton, Beyonce fan and organizer of the event, to find out where the idea came from to mix Beyonce with the Bible. The event was born out of a class that I teach mm -hmm. uh, called Beyonce in the Hebrew Bible. So I walked them through this process of thinking about how the music of Beyonce helped us have conversations about black women and how we worship and our mm -hmm. spirituality. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lift up your hearts. We live in a world where a mostly male church debates whether or not women should be ordained. Mm -hmm. But Jesus chose Mary of Nazareth, a woman of color, and another woman of color, Mary of Magdala, to be the prophet of the resurrection. So what is very clear to me is that God is a lot more comfortable in trusting his power and authority to women of color than the church is. I've been asked time and time again, why Beyonce? I believe that she reminds us that sometimes you have to do your thing your way. You don't do it on demand. You don't do it for your oppressor. You don't sing when they want you to sing. You sing when God tells you to sing. Never give them your song. Beyonce didn't become Beyonce on her own. I'm not standing in front of you because of anything that I've done. 
I'm here because of the Mary Nortons of the world, the Daisy Washingtons of the world. These are women whose names you'll never know, but black women who fought to their core to make sure that there was a better tomorrow for those who could stand in front of you and say, as a black woman, I am created in the image of God, and I am here to change the game and make the world a better place. unapologetically a minister of the gospel. I am unapologetically a biblical scholar. And I am unapologetically a Beyonce fan. And I don't feel like I need to apologize for any of those things. I think that Yolanda's sermon of knowing when to hold on to the hands that are next to you and, and stand tall and to not give up, those are messages that are not exclusive to just a woman of color experience. Those messages are necessary for everyone and to use Beyonce and her music as a platform to bring people into the church to hear the message was truly, truly powerful. So I didn't even show you the entire video because there's language in it as well. So I had to cut those parts out. But uh, I showed you about four fifths of it, right? And um, and if you're if you're really if some of those things really got you spinning, or you just sort of want to think through them, you want to hear a biblical perspective or a biblical conversation on them. Um, the podcast, so Centered Committed Confident, is our podcast, right? The one coming out tomorrow morning is talking about this and what we're doing, and the one coming out the week after. So it's two part podcast. Um, but it is us literally playing the video and pausing it and then talking about the biblical worldview and how it relates to that and what is wrong with what they said or how to view those things from a biblical worldview. It's going to go way more in depth. I'm only going to spend a minute here on this. So if you are not satisfied with just talking about a couple things here and you want to know like all those nuances, check out the podcast for the next couple weeks. Um, I'll try to remember to post it in the group meet as well. Uh, but I did want to talk about just a couple things in that that is going on. And I want to bring them up as a way of showing you what it means to be able to discern what is good and godly. Right? If I'm going to say that our faith defends what is good and godly, we need to figure out how to discern what is good and godly. So first of all, the title of that video on YouTube, so that the video that Augie is using to promote that event, the title of the video is The Church Service That Worships Beyonce. Exact quote. Like, let's put that in, in plainer words. Like, let's get to an even more simpler definition. It's the gathering of Christ believers, supposedly, the gathering of Christ believers to come and worship a celebrity instead of Christ. That's the definition of the statement. And if you thought they just mislabeled the video, right? if you thought they mislabeled it, within the first minute the host of the video says, right? you heard it, direct quote, for anyone who happens to sing praises to the goddess herself, Beyonce. So this church service, this mass, right? And I want to let you know like the meaning of mass comes from the Latin word to go, it's the mission of the church, the idea of a gathering, a mass of God's people is to be reminded of the mission. That's why they call it a mass. The mission of this mass is dedicated to Beyonce, not God. 
In fact, the mass is far from God's word and his mission. Here's just a few more quotes. The priest in the video says, We do have a community that is youthful and loving to the world as a partner. To the world as a partner, not as an enemy. And I hope that's good news for you. God actually loves you. So just to clarify his thinking, right? So here's a really great thing you can do. When you hear someone say something and you want to understand the logic behind it, you inverse the statement. You inverse the statement and see if the logic still remains true. So like just to clarify this statement that uh, they are the world as a partner in the gospel and not as an enemy, that you're going to feel the love of God because of that. The inverse of that statement is if you treat the world as an enemy, if you treat the world as something opposing the gospel, you will not feel the love of God. Are you following that logic there? If they said that by treating the world as a partner, you will feel the love of God, the inverse is if you treat the world as an enemy, you will not feel the love of God. Never mind the countless scriptures. Just going to pull them up right here. John 15, 19. Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. So this Beyonce Mass is promoting the idea of the world and the church becoming partners, working alongside one another, supporting one another, working for each other's good. And yet Jesus says that if you belong to him, like that's what it means when he says he chose you. Jesus says if you belong to him, the world is supposed to hate you. Guys, you can't be partners with someone that hates you. You can't be for each other's good if one of them hates you and is not for your good. Here's the other one about the world. John, 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the problem with things like the Beyonce Mass and the organizations and the people that are promoting them is that they are confusing a love for people with a love for the world. Like they are promoting that we must love the things of the world in order to love the people that belong to it. Because we as people of faith, we who believe in Christ, we who are chosen people of Christ, we are called to love those in the world, right? We are called to love God and love one another. I don't need to love cocaine and value it in order to love the person that has succumbed to it. I don't need to promote and value and encourage homosexuality in order to love the person who struggles with it. I don't need to promote and love and encourage transgenderism in order to, uh, in order to reach and love the person who struggles with their own identity and navigating this world. Like, I don't have to love it. I don't have to promote it. And in fact, the most loving thing that I can possibly do is to defend what is good and godly. And as it says in Scripture, to speak the truth in love to them. To act according to God's word and to trust that the Holy Spirit will work in them the way that the Holy Spirit has worked in me. And my faith is what allows me to do that. Your faith, by faith, 
is what allows you to do that. It's by faith that we defend what is good and godly. And guys, like, we need to ask. We need to ask for the faith to defend the good and godly things. We need to ask for the faith to know what to do and know what to see and know how to interact with these things. Because these things are complicated. Right? Like, a lot of you could watch that video and you could tell me, like, yeah, something seems sort of off. But I can't name, like, everything as to why it seems off. Like, we need to pray for discernment. And we need to pray how we can love others and love those that live in the world without promoting the world. That can only come through reliance on the Holy Spirit, time in the Word of God, and time spent in prayer with God Almighty. We can take that desire and let that desire become married. Like, we, we can't take that desire to love others and let that desire become married to loving the things they love. So, notice as we wrap up here, like, I'm not, I'm not talking about bickering. I'm not talking about quarreling. Like, those are sinful as well. I'm not talking about ways to fight these people. Talking about ways to love these people, truly love them. So, let me end with this. I told you I want to continue to give you just ideas about how to know what is good and godly, right? And the first and foremost person we turn our eyes on is who? What does it say in Hebrews 12? We turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author of our faith. But it says the perfecter. Guys, if you're struggling to discern these things, that means you need your faith more perfected, right? right? If, you're, if you feel your faith or your discernment is flawed in those things, you need it perfected. And who is the perfecter of that faith? Jesus. And so we turn our eyes to Jesus. Look, if you're, if you're looking for this now, read Jesus. Go to the gospel. See what he did. Like Jesus ate among prostitutes and he ate among tax collectors. Like he dined with them. He lived with them. He built relationships with them. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't accompany the prostitute while she was performing her services. Right? He didn't sit in the tax booth with the tax collector while he robbed the people of God. He didn't drink alongside the drunkard to escape reality. But Jesus was still yet able to build relationship with them and still be Jesus among them and still defend what is good and godly. So, just a quick illustration of one of the things. But you guys know that you deal with these things on your campuses all over the place. You deal with these in the workplace. You deal with these in the conversations with your friends. You deal with these with your coworkers, right? And so we're going to take a moment now. And we're just going to pray for discernment. That's all we can do for now. Pray for discernment. Seek the Lord. That he would give us the wisdom in these things. And that next week when we come in to look at the faith of Moses. And we talk about fear and, and anxiety and all these things that run together with faith. We'll have a deeper understanding of where he wants us. All right, Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for messages that are a little different, messages that have points that cause us to think hard. Father, I thank you for messages that cause us to walk away needing more. 
And Lord, you are the one that we receive more from. You are the one who gives us true answers, Father. You are the one that teaches us what it means to love the people that are in the world, but not love the world itself. You are the one that gives us discernment. And pray, I pray, Father, that you give us discernment tonight, throughout the week, throughout our conversations with students and coworkers and friends and parents and siblings. And Father, I pray for discernment through your Holy Spirit and your word and your people. I pray that we would spend time in sincere and simple and secret prayer, Father. I pray that you would marry the thoughts of last week's message from Pastor Garth and this week's message on defending the good and godly things that you've given us, Lord. I pray you would help us to follow after Moses' parents. I pray you would help us to follow after Moses. I pray that all those things would encourage our faith to look towards you, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.